Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to look at these things in your word this evening, to be challenged by the fact that you are the God who controls history and that you bring about your plan and purposes. And even though man may propose and man may uh, make all kinds of plans and run away from you in rebellion, nevertheless, you are still in control. And just as that was true throughout numerous episodes in the Old Testament period, so it has been true in the church age, and it's true now that even though we have a a, a terror-sponsoring state, the most evil terror-sponsoring state in the world, uh, and they're on the cusp of developing nuclear weapons, we know that you can intervene and that you can stop this. And even if they do, we know that they cannot operate or use them apart from your permissive will. Father, we pray for us as believers that we may truly shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. For we live in the midst of a culture that, for the most part, has rejected you, has rejected absolutes, has rejected biblical truth, and is running wild on the uh, arrogance, on the energy of their own arrogance and their own ideas of right and wrong. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And Father, we pray that you would uh, give us wisdom to live in this kind of a culture, to recognize that we're to live for you, and that the critical issue for us as believers is to recognize all of the assets that Christ has provided for us, that we're in him and he is in us, and that he is the one who uh, gives us the strength Christ is in us, the hope of glory, and we should be manifesting that every day, and it should impact our speech, and it should impact our attitudes, and it should impact the values and the priorities that that uh, animate our lives. Father, we pray that as we study your word today that we might have our confidence in you reinforced through a study of these episodes surrounding the raising up of Samuel as even a young boy who would be the one through whom you would change the course of the nation Israel and provide for the ultimate arrival of the Messiah. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Judges, I mean, 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and it's been a couple of weeks So I want to remind you a little bit about what we have been looking at. In the first uh, 10 verses of 1 Samuel 2, this was Hannah's great hymn of praise to God because God is the one who uh, enabled her to become pregnant and give birth to a son. And that son, she's dedicated to Yahweh, and she understands through what she has learned through her own meditation in the Word that there is a connection between this child that she has been given and the future arrival of the Messiah. She ends there at the end of, of, um, of her psalm saying, He will give strength to his king and exalt the home, the horn of his anointed, his Messiah. So she clearly understands this connection. Now, as we saw last time, at the end of chapter 1, we have... Uh, Elkanah and uh, and Hannah have brought the infant to uh, the temple to be given over to Eli, and then they return home. This is where things begin in verse 11. And as we think about this, it's important for us to just think in terms sometimes of big 
chunks of Scripture. Often I take time to go through and we, we drill down, but it's important to think of the large narratives within Scripture and what is going on. And this is especially true in a lot of uh, literature in the Old Testament. It's telling stories. It's telling the story of how God is working to reverse the fortunes of Israel. And at this time, Israel is under the under bondage, basically, to the Philistines, under the dominion of the Philistines, the tyranny of the Philistines. And they have become under the tyranny, even, even worse, they've come under the tyranny of their own sin nature and their own depravity. This is the period of the judges. And the key verse in the book of the judges is that there was no king in Israel, which is an allusion to the fact not that there wasn't a human monarch, but that they had rejected the divine kingship of Yahweh over Israel. And so everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so they had become this secularized pagan culture where everyone's just doing whatever makes them happy, and they are giving themselves over to all forms of idolatry and arrogance is essentially idolatry because in arrogance we deify ourselves. We're doing what what we think is right as opposed to what God is doing right, and we substitute our own values for God's values, and that's the essence of idolatry, is you're worshiping someone other than God, you're uh, submitting to the authority of someone other than God, and so this is the state of Israel. They have succumbed culturally to idolatry, and the same thing has happened in Western civilization and in the United States. We have succumbed to the idolatry of secularism, we've succumbed to the idolatry of moral relativism, we've succumbed to the idolatry of evolution, we are no longer as a culture focused upon the God of the Bible, and so we are doing the same thing that Israel did, we are on a course of self-destruction, because destruction comes from the inside out, whether it's a nation or whether it's an individual, we destroy ourselves by giving rein to our own sin nature, to our own lust patterns as ultimate expressions of our own arrogance. And the solution to sin is not to stop sinning. The solution to sin is always to get focused upon the essence of God. And the essence of God that we're focusing on here is on his righteousness and justice, which is the expression of his holiness. The holiness of God emphasizes his uniqueness. This is exactly what Hannah brings out in verse 2 of chapter 2. There's none holy like the Lord. And the word holy really means to be unique or distinct. In and of itself, it doesn't have the connotation or the denotation, rather, it doesn't have the denotation of moral purity. That is a connotation that it picks up in some context. It has the denotation of that which is separate and distinct or that which is unique. And so the holiness of God emphasizes his uniqueness, and that is centered around the fact that he is absolute righteousness and perfect justice. Righteousness is the standard of his character. He defines that which is right, that which is good, that which is moral. And it is expressed then through his justice. Justice is the expression of his righteousness toward his creatures. Now, in combination with that, we have the other two attributes that I have highlighted on the screen. His veracity, which means he is absolutely true. Veracity 
fits together with righteousness. Righteousness is a standard of, of absolute integrity, and the expression of that is in the area of truth. So everything that he says is absolutely true, and because God is truth and he is righteousness, it follows that he is immutable because righteousness and truth uh, imply an unchangeable standard. And so immutability is that aspect of his character, which means he cannot change. And so this is what stands behind the historical events in the history of Israel through First Samuel. It's emphasizing the holiness of God as he is bringing this nation that is supposed to be a kingdom of priests, and he's bringing that back to himself. And the, the focal point isn't on moving from sinning to not sinning. So you can move from being immoral to being moral, and you can still be in idolatry, and you can still be in failure. Both morality and immorality can be expressions of a person's sin nature. The issue is to conform to the righteousness of God, which can only come when you have a personal relationship with God, which is... In the Mosaic Law, how is that expressed? How is it expressed? You have all these do's and don'ts in the Mosaic Law, so the first thing people think of is that that to, to conform to God means that you're going to do what God says to do and don't do what he says not to do. In other words, it seems on the surface that the way you're going to uh, conform to God is that you're going to follow a set of rules. So the way to change from being uh, pagan idolaters is simply to stop doing what you're doing wrong and start doing the right thing. But it goes deeper than that if you read through the law because the primary command in the law as Jesus summarized it when he's asked by the rich young ruler is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength focuses on what? It focuses on that relationship that you want. You are absorbed with the Lord, with that relationship with the Lord. And so in that personal love for God, the outworking of that is that you're going to live your life in a way that will be pleasing to him. That's why th- that you've got to get the cause before the effect. And that's why in the scripture you see that the barometer of love is obedience. It's in Deuteronomy, it's in Exodus, it's in John, in the Gospels, in the New Testament. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. It doesn't say keep my commandments and then you will love me. So the issue isn't changing from wrong behavior to right behavior in the sense of cleaning up disobedient acts and and now having obedient acts. The issue is to focus upon the character of God and the relationship with God. And then as we uh, come to understand who God is and what he expects, we love him and the the fallout from that, as you were, the the result of that is then we live to obey him. It's just like when you have people who begin to uh, date, they begin to develop a relationship, they begin to love each other, they want to spend time together, and they want to do things that's going to please the other person. And they're not going to do things that are going to upset the other person. And so that's a manifestation of that relationship. But as we 
We come to understand who God is, and we come to understand his grace, and what do we call that? Doctrinal orientation and grace orientation. Then the fallout from that is that we love God. And as a result of loving God, then that has the impact of, of drawing us towards greater maturity because we want to please him. So that's the backdrop. And part of understanding the righteousness and justice of God is that when God is obeyed in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law, God is going to bless Israel because when they disobey, God's righteousness rejects that uh, disobedience And in justice, he has to condemn that and bring judgment upon it. And so we're going to see two things happening in here. In this section from 2.11 and following, we see the contrast between God's blessing on Hannah, on her son Samuel because of their obedience to him, and judgment upon the house of Eli because of their unrighteousness and their disobedience to him. And this is the outworking of the blessings and the curses themes that we find in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. That God is not going to bring uh, prosperity to Israel in the land that he has given them unless they are walking in obedience. And so this is played out and illustrated as we go through this. So you can look at these things that happen here as so, in some ways like a symphony. And you have two movements, or two themes. One is the theme that's negative, that's the judgment on the house of, of Eli. And the other is the theme of blessing that is on uh, the family of Hannah. And they're inter, uh, interwoven so that it, you have a few verses on one, then a few verses on the other, then it comes back and they're interwoven as it builds to the uh, climax of the defeat of Israel at, by the Philistines uh, at, at Aphek and the loss of the Ark of the Covenant that comes in chapter 5 and the death of, e, of, of Eli's two sons and the death of Eli and the departure of the glory of God from Israel, which is at the end of chapter 4. So that gives us kind of the broad perspective here of what is going on in this, in this wonderful narrative. Now, I set this up last time just to remind you that I try to structure my outlines and the thinking and the expression of what's going on here where God is the subject. Because in any kind of story, there's always a hero, there's always a villain. And the hero isn't Samuel, the hero's not Saul, the hero's not David. The hero is God in all the Old Testament literature. And so we have to express what's going on here in terms of what God is doing. So we start off, Yahweh is served by Samuel in 1 Samuel 2.11, and then we switch from the positive, the blessing of Samuel, to the judgment on the house of Eli, that Yahweh is treated contemptuously by the sons of Eli in verses 12 through 17. And then we come back to how God is blessing the family of Hannah, and blesses Samuel in 1 Samuel 2:18 to 21 and then in the fourth movement Yahweh determines to judge the house of Israel in 1 Samuel 2:22 to 25 which is a, a fascinating little section there's an interesting wordplay 
Interesting little pun in verse 25, which we'll get to. And then the fifth movement is Yahweh's blessing of Samuel. Uh, the, Yahweh's blessing of Samuel is evident to all in 1 Samuel 2.26. And then we shift back to a li- the l- longest section uh, here is 1 Samuel 2.27-36, to which is the announcement by this man of God, this prophet, that God will bring judgment upon the house of, of Eli. And this will be confirmed again in chapter 3. And here's something I've said again and again and again. And I got this principle, I first understood it in studying Samuel, and that is God doesn't do anything in private that he doesn't confirm objectively in public. Think about that. That means when God appears and gives a prophecy in private. What we'll see here when we come to this last section in verse 27, then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, see, he's just, you got a man of God comes to Eli, it's just the two of them, nobody knows what's going on, so it's private. But God never leaves anything in private. And what this shows is the people who say, well, God spoke to me. Well, unless you're saying that God spoke to you through his word, it's it's garbage. It's scubala. It's garbage. It's horse manure. Did you notice in that debate on Fox News last week that Megyn Kelly had a little gotcha moment with Ted Cruz trying to get him, hang him on this, well, well, does God speak to you, Senator Cruz? And he answered it perfectly. He said, yeah, he speaks to me in his word every day. Well, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Well, that's because there's a lot of Christians who don't understand that today God doesn't speak any way other than through his word. And it's confirmed objectively. And here we have an example where God is going to send a man of God. He speaks privately to Eli, and he gives this uh, prophecy of the destruction of the house of Eli. And this is confirmed through an additional prophecy that's given through Samuel. Uh, The truth is established by two witnesses. Uh, based on uh, the, the Mosaic Law. So it's not just an independent, private thing. Anybody who comes along and says God speaks to them today is in epistemological antinomianism. I love that phrase. It sounds so uh, high and mighty. Epistemological has to do with what you know and how you know it. Antinomianism means that it's not on the basis of any kind of rules or regulations. It's just against the law. It's It's lawless. And people who say that, well, God spoke to me, there's no objective standard to verify whether he has or he hasn't. And that's the problem with mysticism. And that's exactly what that is, is it's mysticism, and it's not any different from the kind of uh, lawlessness you have in, in moral relativism and paganism. So last time we just looked at the first part, Yahweh is served by Samuel in 1 Samuel 2.11, and the emphasis is on the child ministered to Yahweh before Eli the priest. It's repeated again in verse 18 using the same verb. It's not the normal word that we find for service, but it's a special word that emphasizes uh, service within the, the temple. And so verse 11 is then picked up again by verse 18, and that tells us that the section in between from 12 to 17 is a standalone section. Verse 11 then comes back to develop uh, what God is doing in the life of, of, uh, of Samuel in relation to Israel and how God is going to change Israel because of this. So the second section, Yahweh is treated contemptuously 
by the sons of Eli. And this is in verses 12 through 17. They are the sons of the priest, and they are functioning as priests. And we saw that they are called the sons of Belial. It's translated corrupt, but it means the sons of Belial. And they did not know the Lord. There is not an ongoing relationship with the Lord. They are in spiritual rebellion against God. Now, at that point, I took a couple of minutes just to explain a couple of things. First of all, the term Belial in the Old Testament wasn't associated necessarily with Satan. It was a a general term referring to an evil person or someone who is wicked or worthless. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 6.15, it's picked up as, as a sort of an allusion to Satan. What, what fellowship is there with light and darkness? What fellowship is it with the sons of God and the sons of Belial? And so that's the context there in 2 Corinthians 6.15. But as we go on in this section, we have to understand what's happening in the background. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. And so we looked at this chart, and we have to understand this forms the backdrop for this whole section. What's happening here is this. You have a prophecy made back in Numbers chapter 25, verses 11 to 13. And in Numbers 25, 11 to 13, God says that he is going to make an everlasting covenant with the house of, of, El, uh, of Phinehas, the first Phinehas, who is a, uh, the son of Eleazar, who's the, he's the grandson of, of, um, of Aaron. And that we read this in Numbers 25, 11 to 13, because at this time when Israel is, the men of Israel are being seduced by these temple prostitutes, and they're entering into the uh, temple prostitution, the the, uh, sexual immorality related to the fertility cult. As they're about to enter into the land, this is designed by the king of Moab to destroy the uh, integrity and the genetic or, or racial purity of Israel and the spiritual purity of Israel, uh, Phinehas or Pinchas stands up and he's used by God to kill, to execute those who are committing this adultery, uh, which would be self-destructive to Israel. And so he has, uh, he's praised by God because of his stand for God's holiness and righteousness. And result of his actions, God says in verse 11, uh, that Pinchas turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so I did not consume them. Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it's further described in verse 13 as an everlasting covenant, an everlasting priesthood. Now, to understand this, we have to look at this genealogy. Now, here is Levi. And this genealogy comes out of Exodus 6, 16 to 25, and this is what's called an open genealogy. I didn't cover this part last week. Uh, open genealogy. Now, a closed genealogy is when uh, A lives 35 years and gives birth to B, and then A lives another 150 years and dies. So you, the numbers close it. And then when B lives 45 years and gives birth to C, and then B lives another uh, 120 years and then he dies. Those numbers close the genealogy so there can't be any gaps in between the generations. But in a number of genealogies, you don't have numbers. 
You just have a statement like Levi is the father of Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, and then they are the fathers of these other individuals, and there's no numbers given, and that means there can be several generations between them. Uh, we have a similar example in Matthew 1. Matthew gives us a genealogy of Jesus Christ, but there are numerous gaps in that genealogy. There are no numbers. He's just tracing the main figures through that genealogy, not necessarily trying to tell us everyone. Now, in a closed genealogy, the idea is to tell everyone in the line of the seed. But that's not the point of this, this genealogy in Exodus 6. It is simply to give a, to paint with a broad brushstroke, the descent of Moses from Amram and Kohath to Levi, demonstrating that Aaron and Moses are both from the tribe of Levi. It's not trying to give every person between Levi, uh, Levi and Moses. And so what we see here, the line through Kohath is really the main line that we're focusing on. And what we see is that, that there are two sons of Kohath that are emphasized in the genealogy. Amram, who is the uh, ancestor and the father of Aaron and Moses. And then we have Izhar, who is the son of Kohath, and his line goes down through Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. Korah is the main run, leads his sons. Korah and his sons lead a rebellion against Moses when they're out in the wilderness. It doesn't wipe out the whole line. God punishes them, and eventually they're, they're, they survive as the sons of Korah, and they're involved in the writing of some of the psalms and the singing of some of the psalms. So they're mentioned there. Whereas the line through Aaron, all the descendants of Levi are Levites, and they're priests who serve, have the right to serve in the tabernacle or temple. But the high priest comes only through the line of Aaron. And Aaron had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Itamar. And it is through those four sons that the priesthood, the line of descent from the priesthood would, would take place. Now the first two sons, Nadab and Abihu, were rebellious against God. And Leviticus 10, 1 through 3 tells us that they brought in, uh, illegitimate fire. They brought in incense that was not sanctified. And they brought it into, into the tabernacle, and this was a sign of rebellion against the authority of God. So they were brought under judgment, and God instantly incinerated and vaporized them as a result of their rebellion. God's holiness can't be breached, okay? He's making a standard. My holiness must be preserved. You can't compromise it, and that's what their rebellion would have done. Now, the next rebellion that's emphasized in uh, during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness is in Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, when, the, when Korah, uh, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, along with Dathan and Abiram, uh, have a rebellion against, uh, against Moses and Aaron and their authority, and as a result of that, God is going to open up the earth and it's in an earthquake and swallow up 250 of these uh, rebels uh, with Korah, and they are destroyed. The emphasis is God brings judgment on those who are to be leaders that are his, uh, that have been set apart, and they are uh, overtly rebellious against him. 
So Nadab and Abihu are wiped out, and then Eleazar and Itamar survive. Eli is in the line of Itamar, but Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, is the one who's mentioned in Numbers 25 as having an everlasting covenant. So that means that the, the, the eternal line of high priest is going to come from Pinchas, and that will ultimately be realized in the end times when the priests of the millennial king, kingdom are the Zadokite priests. It's the sons of Zadok that are the ones who are uh, the, the sanctified line from God. But Eli is high priest now, so that tells us that God's got to fulfill his prophecy. So what we're getting is the, the end result of this prophecy doesn't take place until we get into into uh, First Kings. So we're sort of looking at a snapshot of the middle. We have the, the beginning, which is the giving of the prophecy in Numbers 25, 11 to 13, and then we're going to see the end of it as described in the prophetic passages in in uh, Ezekiel in chapters uh, 40 to 48 dealing with the end times temple and what we see in in the intermediate stages is this event and then when uh, Abiathar is kicked out of the high priesthood by Solomon and is replaced by Zadok so that's why this this little one of the reasons this little episode is so important and so significant so we have to pay attention uh, to that it's in 1 Kings 2:35 that uh, Solomon is going to replace uh, Ab- Abiathar, Abiathar with Zadok. Now, let's go back to what's happening here in First, first Samuel chapter 2. In chapters 2, 13 through 17, we see the corruption. The reason God is going to bring judgment on the house of Eli at this particular time and what we see here is a description of how they are abusing the people. There was a well-known, you would know his name, but he was a well-known healing evangelist back in the late 40s and late 50s who'd have these big tent revivals. And when after he had gotten everybody all worked up emotionally, he would say, I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep, and now it's time for me to fleece the sheep. Well, that's exactly what the the uh, sons of Eli were doing, is they were fleecing the sheep when they would come to the tabernacle to worship God. And they were taking for themselves that which was to be dedicated to God. And that's the backdrop here. So this is what we're told about. The priest custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant, see, they wouldn't even go in there. They just hired somebody to do their job for them. The priest servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat would, was boiling. And then he would take this, this big meat hook and, and, and reach down deep into the pot and pull out the meat and take up for the priest everything that he brought out. Nothing is left for God, and this was to be an offering to God. And he did this whenever Israelites would come to Shiloh to the tabernacle in order to in order to worship. Now, one of the things we ought to note about this is this is not a practice that is legitimized by the Mosaic Law. Nothing like this is described in the Mosaic Law, and these uh, various traditions that are taking place by the priests at Shiloh. Uh, 
don't have their origin in the Mosaic law. And this is possible for two reasons, and I think both are true. First of all, they were willingly ignorant of the law. They didn't know what the Levitical regulations were, so because their ignorance of the word, they were just doing whatever they wanted to do. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. Secondly, they were probably influenced by the practices of the pagan Canaanite priests who were using the worship at their uh, temples in order to take advantage of the people. So they were following the the various uh, practices of the Canaanites. So it shows how the religious practices at the tabernacle of God were already paganized. They, They were corrupt. That's why they call the sons of Belial. And then in 1 Samuel 2.15, we read also, notice how that verse began. So in addition to ripping off God and taking all of the food for themselves, they did something else. They burned the fat. When, before, they, before they burned the fat, that's the important term, because what would happen according to Levitical rules is the fat around the entrails, which apparently was considered a delicacy, this was to be burned on the fire and as a burnt offering offered to God. But what they would do is before they burned the fat, the priest servant would come and basically he is intimidating, he's bullying the worshipers that are coming and demanding and threatening them that they have to give the meat to the priest uh, for roasting the priest and that he wants it raw so that he can cook it however he wants it to be cooked, and he wants to take the fat for themselves. And so the issue here is, uh, one, it's important to understand the timing here, that before the fat was burned, the priest's uh, servant would come to demand all of the meat for the, uh, for the benefit of the priest. And so this shows how, how self-centered they were. Now, in 1 Samuel 2.16, the next verse we read, And if the man said to him, so your worshiper comes in, and he's bringing his meat for a sacrifice, and then the bully from the from um, uh, Phinehas comes and says, Give me all of the, all of the meat. He says, uh, No, this is the way it's supposed to be done. I have to burn the fat first as an as a offering to God. And then the servant would, would then intimidate and threaten him and said, <coughs> and then we say, if the man says, burn the fat first, then you, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. So he's ready to, uh, uh, beat, beat the man into submission and threatens him physically with violence. And this is a typical example of what happens under paganism. This is developed all through uh, my study on judges a number of years ago that as a culture gets further and further away from the God of the Bible, it tr- you treat human beings with less and less individual dignity and value. That is because only in the uh, Judeo-Christian heritage do we have a basis for treating every person as unique and distinct and with real dignity because they're created in the image and likeness of God. So under paganism, without any influence from the Old Testament, uh, man becomes nothing more than part of nature. 
He becomes nothing more than part of nature, and this isn't any. This is exactly what we're seeing happen now, as you see this shift that takes that has taken place over the last 150 years with Darwinism. In Darwinism, human beings are animals. You and I are viewed just as a higher order of animal. But there's nothing really that distinguishes human beings from other animals. And so the assumption of evolutionary thought is that man is just part of this chain of being, and he's just a higher form of animal life. In contrast to that, the Bible teaches that man is a distinct and higher order of creature than the animals because he's in the image and the likeness of God. Therefore, man is expected to live as a moral creature and he is accountable for moral moral decisions and he is to live at a higher level than that of the animals he's hold to a higher moral order a higher ethical order and so that social life among human beings is to reflect the their the value of the imageness of god in each and every creature so this should affect every relationship. This is the foundation for uh, integrity. You lose that foundation for integrity under evolution. There's no basis for it as, uh, other than that which is pragmatic or utilitarian. But there is an essential metaphysical foundation to it within Christianity because you want to treat everybody of value because... If you don't, you're making a blasphemous statement because you're being rude to someone who is in the image of God. That's why when you look at the death penalty in Genesis 9 in the Noahic Covenant, that the reason a murderer is executed is not because it's a deterrent. It's not because it's, it's, it's less expensive than keeping them alive in prison. It's not for any of those reasons. The reason you execute someone who commits murder is because they have killed, they have killed, murdered someone who's in the image of God. They have made a blasphemous statement against the, against God himself by murdering an image bearer. So, what we learn from this is human beings are to behave socially according to a higher standard. Human beings, therefore, have established certain standards of behavior in different cultures that we call etiquette or good manners. Some years ago, I read in Emily Post that the reason that etiquette and good manners were developed was to control the baser, selfish instincts of human beings. And what's interesting is that a... A uh, well-known historian at the turn of the last century in the early 20th century by the name of Arnold Toynbee, who wrote volumes dealing with uh, the, the history of the world, and he was not, a, not uh, in favor of Christianity. He was not pro-Christian, but he was an observer of, of uh, human history to a certain degree, and he recognized that over the... Uh, over the course of history, that what you find in a developing, growing civilization, that there is a constant improvement of these sort of social uh, etiquette and manners, and that as a civilization is advancing, the lower socioeconomic classes are imitating the higher socioeconomic classes. But when a, a civilization is in reversal and is in decline, the upper classes, the wealthier classes, the aristocratic classes 
are imitating the values and the standards and the trends that are set by the lower socioeconomic classes. And you can think about this a little bit just within your own frame of reference. If you think back, if you watch any sort of drama on TV, if you ever saw the the musical Oliver, which was set in Victorian England, you look at some of these different kinds of stories. If you ever read Dickens, I know Tinker, you're a big Dickens fan. Uh, you look at even the, the people who are on the street, you look at Fagin, who's the uh, arch-villain in uh, Oliver Twist, and he dresses in a coat and tie. And you look at the women on the street, and they always have gloves and hat. No self-respecting woman, even into the early 60s, would ever go out in public without wearing gloves and a hat. That was the standard. But what happens is when a culture goes in decline, then all of a sudden the, uh, the higher socioeconomic classes start dressing like the ghetto. The ghetto sets the standard, and the gangs set the standards. And we see this today, that you see high school kids and junior high school kids, and they don't want to dress up to emulate those who are successful. They don't want to dress like Donald Trump. They don't want to dress like, uh, like businessmen who are successful. They want to dress... Uh, more along the lines of, of, of drug dealers and those in the ghetto, and they, they, you know, they, they want to look in the opposite direction. But you don't find people like a Clarence Thomas or a Ben Carson dressing like some street punk. They're going to dress for success. And that's one of the things that we have to understand is we live in a culture that is in decline, and so everything moves towards greater and greater informality. And I've made it a point over the course of my ministry to try to fight against this. I'm tilting at windmills because that's the trend of our whole culture is to be as informal as possible. And unlike many of my peers... I still wear a coat and tie on Sunday morning, but um, I would say the vast majority of pastors today just dress in what might be called business casual, not even a sport coat, and many of them just show up, may show up just in blue jeans and sandals on Sunday morning. And I think that brings us down to a lower level. Uh, also recognizing that there's certain protocol for how in certain situations you're going to address one another. Uh, you address, uh, you know, in the academic world, you would address people as pastor or as doctor. Uh, you don't, re- even if you're friends with them in a uh, formal situation, you're going to address them according to their appropriate title. But we've lost that so much, I find that it's it's interesting that in many cases, I hear people refer to pastors as Mr. So-and-so all the time because they're not church and they don't know any better. They don't know what the proper appropriate title is. If anything, just call him pastor or reverend. But they don't do that because they're not trained socially. And that just shows the decline. This is exactly what we see here, is that this culture has just deteriorated and declined, and they become just a bunch of bullies, and they're not even trying to have a veneer of civilization about their activities. In fact, we're told as a summary of this in 2.17, therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the men because they abhorred the offering of the Lord. And this is an interesting Hebrew word here, which means they despised it, they scorned it. 
This is an example of Romans 1, 17 and 18. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They're fools who are rejecting the reality of God, and they treat him with the height of disrespect. This will be the cause of judgment on this house. The third section, the third movement, shifts us back to how God is blessing the family of Hannah. And this is just such a great story because Hannah went through difficult times. We studied that for probably 10 or 15 years. She is the barren wife who can't have children. She's persecuted by her uh, by the second wife, by Penina, by her rival, and she is made to feel like she's uh, she's completely and totally worthless because she can't have any children, and so she goes through a miserable existence for a number uh, a number of years, and she pours out her heart to God, and promising that she will give to the Lord as a as a uh, and dedicate her son if God would open her womb and give her a son. And this is what happens, and that uh, God is going to bless her. So we're told in 1 Samuel 2.18 that Samuel ministered to the Lord. There's that word again that we saw earlier indicating this higher level of service within the tabernacle or temple. And even as a child, this would be before he became an adult at the age of 13, which today would be called bar mitzvah, he and he wore a linen ephod. Now, linen ephod was like a tunic that was made of linen that that indic- that only a priest could wear. Only the high priest or a priest could wear this uh, linen ephod, and this indicated his office, his role as a priest. So he has a linen ephod, and then we're told that his mother every year. His mother would come to him, make him a robe, and bring it to him whenever she and Elkanah would come to Shiloh to offer the yearly sacrifice. So we see how the mother is still doing what she can to influence and to uh, talk to her son and to maintain, uh, maintain that relationship. And each time we see a glimmer of hope in Eli that he still recognizes part of his responsibility as the high priest. He would bless Elkanah and his wife, and he would say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. And so God then answered that. And we're told in verse 21, The Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived, and she bore three sons, and two daughters. So in total, she had six children. That's why back in the uh, hymn, when she uh, talks about um, the barren woman has born seven, that's not talking about what she gave birth to because she gave birth to six. It's, it's using the term seven there as a representative number of that which is reaching fulfillment, that is, that which is complete. So she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, and we get another status report of Samuel, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now, I want you to notice this. And if you have a pen, you can draw, connect the dots here. At the end of this little section, we have some foreshadowing that takes place. In that last line, notice it says, Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now, look over at verse 26, from verse 21 to verse 26, we have another status report on Samuel. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Now we see that he grows more. It gives us more detail rather than just 
just uh, growing before the Lord. Now he's growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with men. And then this is going to continue. If you skip over to 319, we read, So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, when he spoke that this is what the Lord said, that's what the Lord said, and God fulfilled his prophecy. So uh, we have this other status report. Now we come to verses 22 to 25. This is the fourth movement. Yahweh determines to judge the house of Eli. And some time goes by between verse 21 and verse 22 because as we begin in verse 22, we're told now Eli was very old. So now he is towards much closer to the end of his life. He's very old. And he has heard all these rumors about his abusive sons and how his sons are taking advantage and fleecing the people and ripping off God. And he's heard all of this, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, including how they lay, they forced the women who who served at the tabernacle uh, and who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meaning to have sexual relations with them. They were trying to force them to become like the temple prostitutes in the Canaanite and pagan religions. They weren't just simply taking advantage of them sexually. They were... Um, trying to convert them over to the kind of practice that would be found in a pagan uh, in a pagan temple. And so this is what is emphasized here, and we see the contrast between the evil of Eli's sons and how God is blessing uh, Samuel and his family. And so that contrast that contrast is is brought out. Uh, this just emphasizes the further degeneracy that comes in uh, in paganism. One of the things that's interesting is as people's sin natures become less and less restrained, it's interesting how, uh, although it doesn't always end up this way, but in cultures they tend to end up with this sexual degeneracy. It happens with it happened in the antediluvian world. The sons of God, the demons, came down and took the daughters of men as their wives, and that was a uh, corrupt sexual sin, according to Jude. And then we look at Sodom and Gomorrah. We look at the Canaanites. We look at the Phoenicians, and again and again and again. Uh, when their sin natures became unrestrained. That doesn't mean everyone became sexually degenerate, but it became a characteristic of the degeneracy of the culture it dominates. That's what we're seeing in our culture. Again and again and again, we are obsessed with sex, whether it's heterosexual sex or whether it's homosexual sex. And this just dominates things. In fact, there's a little uh, video that was going around today of an encounter over in Baytown, I think yesterday or the day before, between uh, Senator Cruz and a reporter. And the reporter kept asking questions related to the same-sex decision, and he tried to sidestep it by saying, aren't there a lot of other issues? Finally, Senator Cruz said, well, are you just consumed with sex? Is that that the issue? And then the reporter said, well, why do you hate homosexuals? And Cruz masterfully responded by saying, it seems to me that that as a Christian, I'm to love everybody, but you seem to hate Christians. I love the way he flipped that back on him, and that is exactly how we should respond. Christians don't hate homosexuals, but why do you hate Christians? Because our standard is to love one another. Okay, 
which is not permissiveness, by the way. Anyone who says love is permissiveness would make a lousy parent because parents understand that love means that you restrict the behavior of your children so they don't do the things that are harmful for them and will destroy their lives. So Eli uh, is dealing with the fact that he's got this these sexually perverted sons who are raping the women who are coming to the tabernacle. Now, we have examples of women serving in the tabernacle. For example, Exodus 38.8 says that there are serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And then, uh, so this gives us that example. Now, in verse 25, we have this interesting little play on words, as I mentioned earlier, where Eli is talking to his sons, and verse 23 says to them, Why do you do these things? For I hear about all your evil dealings from all the people. He says, No, my sons, it's a little late when you're, you're, when you're probably 80 years old and your kids are 55 or 60. It's a little late to try to teach them a little self-discipline. My mother would have tried anyhow. <laughs> and she would have been successful. He wasn't because he had no basis for ever teaching discipline or self-control to his sons. And this is the principle. He says, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. So here's the point. If you offend somebody else, if you do something against somebody else, then that can be brought to court and the judge will adjudicate between you and bring about justice. If one man sins another, God will judge him, not directly, but intermediately through the government that God has established. And then we have, this is one of those examples where you sort of lose the thrust of this with the way it's translated. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Now, what's interesting here is you have a play on words here that you miss when one word is translated judge and the other word is translated uh, intercede because we don't really have the kind of cognate or word system that, that the Jews use. Both cases uses the root word palal. In the first case, it's in the PL stem, which is, shows an intensification of action, and it means in the PL to intercede or to mediate. So it's, it, it should be translated to get the thrust of this. If one man sins against another, God will provide a mediator between the two men. But then the next line is where it gets fun. But if a man sins against Yahweh... Who will intercede for him? Now, that's not the same word. It's not a PL stem there. It shifts to the Hithpael stem, which is the causative stem, and the Hithpael stem is normally the, the, the word is translated prayer or intercession in the Hithpael stem. And it has that idea primarily in the Old Testament to pray. So if we're going to put it into modern English vernacular, it would read like this. If one man sins against another, God will judge him or, inter, or intercede with him for them. But if a man sins against the Lord, he doesn't have a prayer. Now, that's an accurate translation. And that's the point, is that God then, if that sin is against God, God is the one who will bring judgment. And then we have this last phrase, nevertheless, well, before I get to that, one of the things that comes out of this as a reminder, it's not the same word, but it is a, a reminder is in Job chapter 9, 
verse 3, Job chapter 9, verse 3, or verse 33, uh, Job talks about the fact that if there was only someone to mediate between us, then we could talk with God, emphasizing the need of a mediator. We connect that to the fact that God has provided a mediator between us so that when we sin against God, there is a mediator. And Paul speaks of this in 1 Timothy 2.5, that there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. So the answer to this is that we don't have a prayer because of sin except for Jesus Christ, who is our intercessor, our mediator, who took the sin upon himself. Now, the last clause, and I'll finish up here, is that the writer of 1 Samuel gives us the conclusion, nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the idea here is that they had already committed an committed a capital crime. In Leviticus 7.25, we're told that whoever eats the fat of the animal of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, the person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. And in Leviticus 22.9, they shall therefore keep my ordinance lest they, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby if they profane it. So they've committed a capital crime by the way they are abusing the, the tabernacle sacrifices and taking the food and the fat for themselves. And so they've already, they're already under a sentence of death from the Supreme Court of Heaven. And so God is simply warning them of what will happen. He's not giving them an opportunity to recover because they've already crossed the line of no return and they're under the sin unto death. And so this is what is being emphasized here is that uh, their disobedience is just a sign of the fact that they've already hardened themselves into disobedience. And the, it, it's not as harshly, tra- the meaning here isn't as harsh that the Lord desired to kill them, but the Lord's will was now that they be executed for their sin. That is the idea here. But the implication that we learn from this in talking about who will be the mediator is to remind us that today we have a mediator between God and us who is Jesus Christ, and that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And when we trust in him, then we have eternal life. Our sins are wiped clean at the cross, but we have to realize that through regeneration by trusting in Christ for salvation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study through this, to see that that there are real implications for sin and that when a culture or an individual continue in carnality, There will be an internal chaos and collapse as a result of arrogance and a result of of the carnality. And this will go from bad to worse unless there is a correction from your grace. Father, we pray for our nation because our culture is sliding and rapidly into the same sort of relativistic chaos and moral uh, an, an ethical perversion that we have in Israel, see in Israel in the Old Testament here. And the only solution is your grace. Just as your grace turned the tide 
during this time so your grace can turn things around in this time. For with you there is nothing that is impossible. And, Father, we trust in you that you would give us wise leaders in this country, that you would raise up uh, wise Christian leaders who can have a significant impact on the direction of this nation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.